of creativity and working hard and giving of yourself just to bring others joy for no other reason. And that is beautiful. That is this picture to me of things that we were created to do, things we were created to be, the relationships we're supposed to have with one another, open, embracing, and joyous, and giving, and self-sacrificing. That's what our lives were created to express. But our normal systems and ways of life, we don't see that most of the time. It doesn't have room for that. And I love this season where that just bursts out. And I think that fits so well with the story of the transfiguration because it's this moment of the goodness of God just bursting out into normal life and nobody knows what to do about it or what to think about it. It's so completely off the scale of anything that they had imagined that they're just stunned and they're floored. And when God goes big, there is no bad in it. It is just big and beautiful. And it changes us. It changed them and it changes us. There's a passage that we're going to hear this morning that has just been really grabbed a hold of me um, when preparing for this. It says, our God will not be silent. And I hold on so tightly to that, that all of the ways that we do things that seem so dark and seem so hopeless and seem so broken and twisted, they don't get the last word. They will not go on forever. Our God will not stay silent. We may feel like we're in a season of the silence of God. That is a real thing and a hard thing, but that is not the end. The silence of God is never the end of the story. Our God does not stay silent. So this morning, let us remind ourselves and one another. Let us celebrate the extravagant goodness of our God and let it change us so that we too cannot contain it that we too burst forth in our everyday lives with this extravagant, radical, unrealistic, unacceptable, beautiful love of God. Amen. Whoever has our psalm reading, would you please lead us this morning? Psalm 51 through 6. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Amen. Our God comes and does not keep silent. Before him is a devouring fire and a mighty tempest all around him. Everyone? Our God, Our God comes, comes and does not keep silent. silent. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness. For God himself is judge. Selah. Our, our God, God is us and is not be silent. Has our epistle reading? 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as the slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is a God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Mark 9, 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. 
Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Please pray with us. Christ, Christ our, our Savior, Savior, our, our King, King, and our friend, friend, in you the light of God, God shines forth into, into the darkness of our lives. lives. In you we have been shown a radiance that no shadow of grief or pain or fear can dim. But we are blinded by the gods of this world, following the glamour of crowds rather than the word that spoke us into being, trusting in the protection of the powerful more than the righteous judge who suffered for our sins. Forgive us, O Lord, and turn, and turn our faces to your light, that, that we may look and see none but you. Brothers and sisters, believe and have hope. Our God comes and does not keep silence. He gathers his faithful ones from the ends of the earth, those made his own by the covenant of his sacrifice. Through him you are forgiven, you are welcome, you are loved. Let us rejoice together and give praise to the Lord. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. You revealed your glory and presence in your beloved Son, Jesus the Christ. In receiving our prayers, reveal the glory and presence of your Spirit alive in the world today. Free us from all doubts and empower us to act as a transfigured people.
you were forsaken, I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit remains within me because you died and rose again.
bless you back. And we ask you to use this offering to, uh, for the furtherance of your kingdom, for the benefit of your, of your kingdom, for the people that you have died for. And we thank you for all of this. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Y'all be seated. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Mardi Gras. Happy, happy birthday to my incredible wife. Yeah, she's turning 29 again. Isn't that amazing? Our text for today is in... Ephesians chapter 3. If you want to use one of our Bibles uh, to follow along with us, you can raise your hand and someone uh, will bring one to you. Uh, this is the last sermon in a series uh, on spiritual gifts in our lives, the, the gifts the Spirit bestows on us. Giving a gift is an act of love. And so it makes sense whenever the Bible mentions spiritual gifts, we almost always find alongside of the conversation of spiritual gifts, teaching on what it means practically as Christians to love one another. Uh, throughout the history of the people of God, the Spirit has been empowering us toward a single end. God coming to dwell richly with us, with his people, with his church. So often when we talk about spiritual gifts, we're so focused on what we are able to do in the power of the Spirit that we lose sight of what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in us. In our churches, in our cities, in our individual families and lives, God wants to dwell with us richly and fill us with abundant life. We talked about charismatic gifts. We talked about finding a role in the life of, of your church. We talked about how we have been given spiritual gifts in order to pour out into the people around us. Not, not to build ourselves up, but to build the community, the church up as a whole. And we talked about hospitality, our dependence upon the Spirit and each other and what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. God's grace is varied, so we have to depend on one another to experience the fullness of life in Christ lived in the Holy Spirit, which includes welcoming each other in, not just to our churches, but to our homes and into our real lives as we really live them day to day giving honor to each other, especially for work which is often overlooked. Like how about Lewis back there on the slides today? As one author and pastor's wife terms it, the gospel comes with a house key. And part of the Christian life is opening your life to other people. Our passage this morning is one that has a special meaning uh, to my wife on her birthday. Uh, I fell in love with her 16 years ago. In all of my earliest memories, she had this verse written in pen on her wrist. Uh, she was trying it out. She was thinking about getting a tattoo. I think she would have if she were not terrified of needles. Uh, that summer, she spent the summer working in an orphanage in Ethiopia. And the Spirit of our God very clearly called her to bring children without parents into her own family and community, which is something she's done now for seven years. And I'm grateful for her obedience to God and all the beauty and richness which the Lord has poured out in our lives in and through that work. I will never forget on our second date, second date, y'all, this is, I'm 20 years old. Um, she told me she was intending to foster and adopt children. And if that was not going to be my plan, then I needed to not waste her time. <laughs> That was the ferocity and commitment with which she pursued the calling of God in her life. If only we would all pursue our callings with such abandon. What an incredible life, what an incredible journey uh, it has been to be called along, alongside her. Uh, Ephesians 3 speaks in this sermon is about the unity God brings to his church by his spirit. It is a unity that's founded upon his own love for us as children, and it's founded upon, and this is, this is something we don't spend enough time thinking and talking about. It's founding upon, founded upon God's vastness. Uh, you could use the word sublime. The unity that is the work of the Spirit in His church. We serve a God who is so vast 
as to be incomprehensible and yet so loving as to enter into our lives and our world and be fully known in Christ. Let's read it. Ephesians, starting in chapter 3, verses 14. Uh, If you are willing and able, if you would stand as we read. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can sit. Pray with me briefly. Father God, I pray, as I always do, God, in my own brokenness and all of my mistakes, God, that whatever I say today, Lord, that what you administer to people's hearts and minds is your truth and your word today. God, because we know your truth will set us free, and we desperately long to be free. And I pray this in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen. Amen. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You may be filled with all the fullness of God. How do you know a thing that surpasses all knowledge? May we learn through paradox this morning. That in the kingdom of God, humility is greatness. And admitting mystery is knowledge. That the way to go further in and further up in the kingdom of heaven is the way down into service of each and every person around us. May we learn through paradox this morning that to to comprehend a love which surpasses knowledge. The unity of the church universal is a work of the Spirit of God seen very clearly in this passage and in many multiple others. It is a work strong enough that Jesus said the church would be able to stand together even at the very gates of hell, of the enemy. The unity of the church is a work strong enough that it does not need a defender. Even in a fractious age, such as the age in which we live, the church, in truth, is one. We can make divisions, but they aren't real. The reality is, The church is one. Every person who confesses and believes in Christ is your brother. Every person who is saved in Christ is your sister, your father, your mother. Again, so often we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We talk about what we are able to do in the power of the Spirit, and we forget what the Spirit is trying to do in us. We who are in Christ have a bond that is founded in love, the love of a God who would leave his throne and empty himself to ransom us when we were still enemies, a love which Peter says covers a multitude of sins. May we learn in this passage the breadth and length and height and depth of that love this morning. I have seen the unity of the Spirit at work all weekend as I've spent time with you all and and with some folks from the church this weekend binding us together in unity. Folks that don't make sense together. Folks who don't live 
in the same state can greet each other as brothers and sisters. People from all over the country have merged here to take part in the mission of God in this place. And I've seen the Spirit at work all over, helping brother recognize brother, people who only see each other a few days out of the year, recognizing each other as family. Unity is a work of the Spirit of God. Many theologians will tell you the Spirit of God is actually what binds the Father and Son together in the mystery of the Trinity. And every Christian will tell you of the unity of the church, how the Spirit is able in healthy churches to create true family. I don't mean like-mindedness. I don't mean agreement. Uh, Good for you if you have like-mindedness and agreement within your family. That's not my personal experience. Um, Show me a family in your church that is like-minded and always agrees, and I will assent to that point. Uh, Again, that's just not my experience. Take my, my family, for instance. My son is a complete jock, complete athlete, right? Um, I am an utter nerd. He will grow up knowing the stats of his favorite team. I grew up knowing Elvish. Uh, it is not like-mindedness. It is, I did letter, uh, it was inknowledgeable. Um, let that just sink in. They actually gave it, I never bought the jacket, I just have the letter. I figured if I wore that, that's just like an invitation, right? Um, It's not like-mindedness that binds us together as a family. It's love. It's love, in in this case, that I'm thinking of love of an adopted father and his son that binds us together. Love that covers a multitude of sins. Love that founds relationships not on performance, but on forgiveness. And the Spirit of God. So Galatians 3 tells us, the Spirit binds us together in peace, real peace, real family. Humility, gentleness, and patience are meant to define our interactions with each other as the body of Christ. I love the phrase Paul uses, bearing with one another. If you look at that word, that word is usually used to talk about the Christian response to persecution. Bear with one another. (laughs) It may not be easy, y'all. It may not be easy, but it will be blessed. Bear with one another, he says. Not just begrudgingly, he says, be eager to maintain unity in the bond of the Spirit. The Spirit binds us together in peace. Another lesson from this passage, uh, unity and peace are the outflow of humility and patience, it says. Humility and patience. Are there two Christian values that are more despised by our culture than humility and patience? If you want to live counterculturally, if you want to be a rebel in this time and place, If you want to not be conformed to the pattern of this world as a Christian, more than almost anything else, I would tell you to pursue humility and patience in your life. The largest company in America was founded with the idea of two-day shipping. The second largest company was the one that figured out first how to instant stream television without commercials. In such a society, patience is a radical act. We are not a patient people, and if we are honest, we are not a particularly humble people. We believe in ourselves oftentimes before we believe in God. We insist on our own way more than we love each other. Even after we know the Lord, we almost always believe ourselves to be right. And if we ever doubt ourselves, we go online to find a community who agrees with us. Humility and patience are the ground out of which unity springs like a well. And may the Lord plant us like a tree beside that spring. May we learn to value unity more than we value our own way. More than two-day shipping, even. More than like-mindedness. More than even being right and on the right side of history. May we value unity in the church. As Paul writes in our passage, may we be eager for unity in the Spirit. Why? Why why is this so important? Why does this passage spend so much time 
talking about this. Why does the Spirit of God work day in and day out to bind people together across nations, across ethnicities, denominations, state lines? Why does, is it so important to know that when we gather together like this, that we are not merely convening around shared interests? This is a family reunion. We are a band of brothers. Though we spend our days arguing different opinions in different parts of the country, we will spend eternity at the same feast table in Zion, those of us who are in Christ, in the same house, as part of the same family, no longer seeing and knowing only in part, but face to face with truth himself in person. Humility, patience, and the unity of the Spirit. Unity is important because unless we are family, listen, hear this part, Unless we are family, we cannot take part in God's redemptive work in the world. Unless we are family, we cannot take part in God's redemptive work in the world. I was talking with Rachel on Friday here at the church upstairs in the kitchen. She's taking a class at the seminary called Supervised Ministry, which means we uh, she joins in with missions and work happening here at the church, and, and they give her questions for she and I to discuss each week. Uh, this week and last week, we're meant to have a conversation about, the question was very vague. It said, what is the Missio Dei? Meaning, what is the mission of God? To rephrase it, what is, what is it that God is doing in the world? The answer, in short, is redemption. The idea of redemption is one that we all need to sit with. We need to comprehend it. As our passage says, even if the fullness of it is beyond knowing, redemption is God's desire for each and every one of us this morning. Isolation and disunity are the opposite of redemption. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, imagines hell as a place where you can get anything and everything you want cheaply and simply just by thinking of it. This is not heaven, this is hell, in his imagination. Um, and even though everyone began in a great city center, the people there are constantly moving further and further outward from everyone else. Thinking up new houses just a little, little further out of town, filling them, and then moving further out from the center. The men living at the edges of the map are thousands of miles from anyone else in houses filled with everything they could possibly imagine. That, again, in his imagination, is a picture of hell. A place of anything you could ever want, but nothing of good quality. Your life devoid of relationship, especially relationship with God, but also your relationship with other people. Isolation is the opposite of redemption. Let's take some time to understand and dwell upon the redemption of our God in the world. Even though God is redeeming humanity throughout the Bible. The use of the word redemption in the Bible doesn't begin until the Passover narrative. The entirety of God's people was suffering in slavery, and it took death to free them. Either the death of the firstborn of each family or the death of a lamb in his place. Someone had to bear the suffering of sin. That's in the scriptures where the idea of redemption begins. And very quickly, the word begins in the law to apply to all kinds of difficult situations. A, a family who loses their land and becomes destitute can be redeemed by someone buying the land back, which is their livelihood. A, a daughter who's sold into slavery can be redeemed by being purchased, buying her back from slavery and restoring her in the midst of a family as a daughter or a wife or a mother instead of a slave. The book of Ruth is probably the clearest picture we receive in the Old Testament of redemption put into practice by the people of God. Ruth is barren, coming from a previous marriage. She's an immigrant. She's from a hated nation to Israel, and she's a refugee of famine. By the time she comes to the people of God, she's begging. She's gleaning in the fields, trying to feed herself and her mother-in-law. She's desperate. I have met so many people like this. Here in the French Quarter, and a lot of our neighbors are in similar situations, I, I can tell you firsthand there are many people being bought and sold in our neighborhood. Yes, even today, as slaves. A lot of it today looks like sex trafficking. We as the people of God in this time and place need to buy them back in whatever way we can and make them daughters again. Amen. 
There are many people in our city who have fled here because of hunger, many of them immigrants, many others grieving loss like Ruth. I mentioned my wife and I who foster. Every child you meet in foster care has lost a family and is in need of family. Every family that you work with has lost a child. There are a lot of people here in New Orleans like Ruth in need of redemption. Ruth's life, her entire trajectory is changed in chapter two of the book. Ruth's mother-in-law tells her, they discover, you have a relative who can stand in the place of your husband according to the law. And she uses the word. She says, he is a redeemer. And if he's willing to actually follow the law and the heart of God in his life and in yours, you can have a family again. The book ends with a small genealogy. Ruth has a child, and through that child, God brings about the line of David, ultimately the birth of Christ, who through his work on the cross would bear the suffering of all of our sins. Someone who has lost their sin, or someone who has lost their family because of sin, slavery, destitution, someone who has lost their family being wrapped up into family again. That's the idea of redemption. Redemption is God's heart for each and every one of us. And redemption is central to our faith practice as followers of Christ. Redemption is powerful. It has the ability to fill the practice of your church, of your faith community, with incredible meaning. Children who need family, finding it among your people. People with broken families, finding love and forgiveness among you. But as with every powerful thing, the higher the angel, the fiercer the devil when it falls. Many of the scriptural authors note that if redemption is absent from your faith, <clears throat> faith and practice as Christians, the rest of your religious practice, Isaiah uses the word worthless, absurd. And then he uses the image of people raising hands to praise God with blood on them. It's an intentionally disturbing image. Redemption is powerful. It is life-giving when you put it into practice. And the lack of redemption from a faith community is both deadly and horrifying. Through the Psalms and writings, we start seeing this idea of redemption, this need for family, applied not just to widows and orphans and refugees. We see it applied to each of us. You and I are in need of redemption. God is really the only good father when it comes down to it. And we are all in need of redemption in various ways. No matter how cohesive our families, no matter how loving our relationships, there is still sin separating us. We still need to begin to understand God as our true and good father. In the New Testament, the idea of redemption is used to explain the way in which God saves us in Christ. Each and every person God saves, he saves through family. Adoption to sons and daughters, marriage of a bride made new. God's salvation throughout the entirety of scripture is wrought through redemption. Wrapping people up in family, the church standing in the place of those they've lost for as long as we need to be there. And again, the authors of the New Testament insist this is something we all need. If you're here today asking who redemption is really for, who's in need of connection and loving family, who are the sinners and the sufferers in our world, the scriptures answer over and over again, we all are. This is something we all need, only some of us are in desperate need. In our work drawing other people into family, we realize our own need, or to say it differently, in our work drawing other people into family, both our nuclear families and our church families, we are allowed, we are invited to admit our own need. Bonhoeffer lays it out as a choice we all make on the daily in his book, Life Together. He says this, many Christians would be unimaginably horrified if a real sinner were to turn up among the pious. So we remain alone in our sin trapped in lies and hypocrisy, for we are, in fact, real sinners. Every one of us makes a choice between isolation and family. 
Every one of us makes that choice daily between family and the outer dark. Strangely, when you follow along Christ's way, the further you go, have you ever, have you ever thought of this? The further you go into following Christ, the more you become like all of the people in our society who are most in need of redemption. God doesn't save us to be put together and honorable. He saves us by calling us into suffering and hurt. Listen, think about this for a moment. In Christ, you begin to understand yourself as a child who's in need of adoption in the family of God. In Christ, you become, as Peter writes, an exile, a refugee, longing for community. In Christ, you become a sojourner, a traveler, someone who's looking for home. In Christ, you become a sinner. You have to become a, you have to know yourself as a sinner before you can lean on his grace. Before the gospel is good news, first it is tragedy. This mission of redemption is given to all of us because we have been adopted into the family of God. Because of that, we are able to draw other people into the family of God as well. Dear friends, more than being right, I long to be a part of a family. More than change, I long for home. More than like-mindedness, I long for love. And a love that's able to cover my multitude of sins. Which is to say, I long for the love of our God given to us in the Spirit. May we be a people who cling to love and unity before we cling to anything else. May we be a people who have forgiveness on our lips before we say anything else. And may we be a people who engage in God's mission, his work of redemption. A people who long to draw others into the family of God. Adam, in just a moment, is going to come and lead a time of response. But may we learn through paradox this morning that in the kingdom of God, humility is greatness. And admitting mystery is knowledge. The way to go further up and further into the kingdom of God is the way down into service of each and every person around us. May we learn through paradox this morning what it is to comprehend a love which surpasses all understanding. Pray with me. Father God, we so desperately need you. God, we desperately need you in our lives. God, we desperately need you in our churches and in our communities. God, when we pursue vain idols, we forfeit the grace which could be ours. Lord, may you teach us day to day, every day, Lord, to choose community. God, to choose confession, to choose repentance over isolation. God, to choose family over the outer dark. God, may you teach us day to day what it means for us to be your children. God, to go to the people and places that you would go. God, what it means to invite other people into this life, this family. God, day to day, would you fill us with the same abounding life that you filled all of the earth with in creation. God, may you make us more like you each day. God, I pray all of this in Jesus' name so we know you hear us. Amen.
you've got this grid pattern of boxes, and then there's one with a cloak, you know, long gown and crown of thorns. And they had the big pencils, and he's got the eraser. And he's going around <laughs> erasing all the boxes. Um, so we need to follow his example this morning, because we got more in common than we think with all of us, not just in this room. Um, we're going to remember, practice remembering this morning. So uh, as we're doing that, we're going to come up. I am going to need some volunteers. We may or may not have enough tiny plastic cups. So if there's any uh, brave souls, you might have to dip. We got the cups. Uh, you know who you are. Um, so you come when you're ready, take the cup, take the bread, uh, and eat and drink when you're ready. And I'm sure it'll be chaos, but we'll figure it out with all these people. Um, I'm going to read scripture. So the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you do it. Drink, uh, if you drink of it, remember me. I need a couple people uh, to come serve this morning. Anybody want to serve? Everybody wants to serve. Let some, somebody let somebody serve. Just um, Yeah, y'all can hold the food right there. We need somebody to hold the bread too. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. There's a lady. So. Yeah. Come. Come whenever you're ready to the table. We're all, uh, God's table. We're all welcome. <laughs>
take, eat, and drink a foretaste of eternity spent at the feast table of the Lord in Zion. No.